For the first time ever, I am thrilled to say we have an official sponsor for the Dirk Talk podcast, and that's Ariat. I've worn Ariat boots on every job site I've visited over the years, traveling in them across five continents. More importantly, I have yet to find a single project where working folks, unlike me, are not wearing Ariat boots and workwear in every condition imaginable. And there's really good reason for that. And that's because it's phenomenal stuff. And the more I've learned about Ariat and the company, the more I've loved their brand. So with this, Ariat is offering any Dirt Talk listener 10% off their next Ariat order at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk. That's 10% off boots, jeans, and workwear at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk or at the link in this episode's description. With that, let's get to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to Dirt Talk. Got another episode today. I'm trying to record a few before I hit the road, finally, after all this coronavirus nonsense. Before we get started here real quick, I just want to ask, we're spending a lot of money on the podcast and we're not really expecting anything in return. We're just doing this to get the word out and 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 teach people about the industry, teach people how others got started and, and what actually goes on behind the scenes of this industry. So if you enjoy it, if you enjoy this episode, if you enjoy any other episodes, please, please, please share it with other people that you think would enjoy it. That's the only way this grows. We can't grow this on our own. We really need your help. So if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, don't be afraid to share it because that's how we grow this thing. And, and that's how we you know make the dirt world a better place. It's our mission. Today, we are talking to Alan Guy. He's president of Anvil Builders out in California and San Francisco. He said he just got, they just extended the quarantine through May, which is pretty wild. Thanks for joining us, Alan. Yeah, thanks for having me, Aaron. Excited to be here, and it's my first podcast, so wow, excited to see how it goes. Yeah, well, that's not unique. It's it's everyone's first podcast. Everyone I interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, there used to be that joke, a great face for radio. So I guess we changed it, a great face for podcast. Huh? Yep, yep. Well, that's why yeah. I'm doing it. We we did the videos <laughs> yeah, for a while, and I, I gave up on them for a reason. <laughs> yeah, same here. So you're at Anvil Builders. How did you end up in the construction industry to begin with? How did you get to just the construction industry? You know, it's kind of a weird thing. I think construction kind of chose me. Kind of growing up, you know, I was born in Alaska, spent 12 years on Kodiak Island, and it was a very blue-collar town, a fishing town. Spent a lot of time, my mom will tell the story, you know, when they were paving the road in front of our house, actually paving and not repaving it. One summer when I was probably four or five, and I spent every day out there, you know, rain or shine, watching equipment, work and all that. You know, my dad was always, tinkering on the house or a boat or something like that. He was a dentist, a very blue collar. I don't think I ever saw a repairman at our house or later in Oregon on our, our small farm. You know, I went to college down in California for mechanical engineering, but spent the summers interning with a production framer out of Bend, Oregon. Mm. And I think that's kind of where I learned a lot about construction and work and work ethic and all that stuff. And then when I was graduating from college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my roommate across the hall had gotten a job with a big general contractor here in the Bay Area and said, hey, you should call these guys, come work here. And that's how it kind of all started. So, What did you study in college? I studied mechanical engineering. Okay. So, you know, looking back, yeah, I probably should have done civil engineering, but by the time I figured that out, um, it wasn't worth staying a couple more years to change my degree. I think what you learn in engineering school is how to solve problems and meet deadlines. Yep. 100%. Um, which you can, 
which you can apply, you know, to any career you want to go into. Yeah. I feel like engineering is just engineering. I mean, unless you want to become a PE and design bridges, it doesn't matter what kind of engineering you get. Um, yeah. I mean, I started as biomedical engineering. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. Nice. And that, that changed rather quickly. So do you miss lifestyle of like Kodiak Island, Oregon, or are you city guy? You know, it took a long time to get used to not driving everywhere and looking for parking every night. There's definitely days when I miss it, especially when I go back to Bend and there's space and all that stuff going outside. But once you're used to it, I enjoy it now, but I still enjoy getting out and going back to those places. Yeah. It's just once you've, once you've figured out, you know, the opportunities here and the people here and all that stuff, it's a great place to live. So when you went to work for this, this GC, who, who was it? Was it Webcore? Yeah, correct. It was Webcore Builders. What were you doing to start? I started off as a project engineer in their, they call it special projects division. So we were doing a, a retrofit of an old tobacco warehouse to turn it into high-end condos. Wow. So I was, I was pretty fortunate. It was a small project team, really good people on the team. And we were the general contractor. And we also self-performed the concrete work on that. So I was the, you know, the general contractor PE and also took a lot of the concrete work on ourselves and ran that. So learned a ton on that job. Doing the concrete work, I was obviously able to pull in, you know, my field experience from the past summers on how to read plans and forming and all that stuff. And those two guys that are on the project is my bosses and one of them works here and one of them is still a good mentor for me. So no it, was, it was a cool, cool project. And then I moved over to their bigger side, finished out a couple of big projects for them and then left in 2009. So how did that come about? Why did you leave and, and how did you meet you know, the two others you started Anvil with? You know, I left in uh, early 2009. The economy was starting to slow. I obviously didn't really know what that meant. I was so young, right? Construction was going to flop. I was the youngest project manager at WebCorp at that time. I uh, decided to go work for another smaller firm and didn't like it. Huh. So we uh, worked there for about six months and we parted ways at the end of that year. And then it was like, there's nothing going on in the world. What am I going to do? Which is kind of, you know, it was a blessing in disguise looking back because I wouldn't be where I am today without making that move and going outside my comfort zone. I got together with two other guys and I guess earlier, quite early 2010, guy named Richard Leiter and H.T. Tran. And we were trying to figure out what to do. We knew there was a lot of public works going on in the economy and trying to figure out a way to put together a company. So we put together Anvil Builders in the absolute bottom of the 2008 recession. So July of 2000, it's like July 15th of 2010 is I think the date of our incorporation. And if you, you know, Google that recession, that's like the bottom of the curve. Whose so idea we, was uh, it to start a company? I don't know. We kind of all of us got together. Richard and I got together first and we found HT. HT was a Bay Area native. He was actually injured in the Iraq war. So he was a service disabled veteran. He was working as a procurement officer and wanted to, you know, do his own thing. He had uh, his mentor was a guy named Bob Nielsen that uh, was a big executive at Turner Construction Company and was pushing HT to get involved in some construction on his own. So we put it together. You know, we had a bunch of small business certifications when we got started. Some of them helped. Some of them were absolutely useless, but that was definitely an interesting time for us. I mean, there was definitely, it was a weird time. You know, there's a lot of public economy trying to figure out you know, how to make a buck. Had Richard, what was his business experience then? You know, Richard, he's wiser than me, I guess is how you say it now, and has more life experience. Yeah. Um, you know, he was a commercial real estate guy, ran some stuff in the U.S., ran some stuff overseas for a while. 
came back here and was doing some private equity stuff and some different some different stuff. So definitely not a construction background, but knew how businesses and the world went around. So a lot of when people start a construction company, they usually know the construction. Yep. Um, but there's a whole lot more to running a construction company than actually doing the construction. So he was able to help in that, you know, with banking, bonding, insurance, leases, people, you know, kind of long-term or long-game goals right there. I've met, spent a lot of time with Richard, um, never met HT, but how is it working with, I guess, being partners with people that are so different from you? Because I know the thing that strikes me most about you and Richard are you guys have two totally different personalities, totally different skill set. I mean, you're, you're really two different individuals with two different backgrounds as well. How does that work and, and how is it advantageous? I think it's great. I mean, I think it's, you know, it instantly allows you to have more skills as a corporation or as a group. You know, you have someone to go to with a problem that you may not know the answer to. You're not going to sit around and argue about production rates on a framing job or something like that or an underground job. Yeah. And I don't really get involved in, you know, a lot of the stuff that he does. I think it's been great. I'd absolutely recommend it for anyone looking to do something like that. To find someone that knows stuff that you don't know, right? It's an easy way to add value to your organization. Have you been able to grow faster since you guys are partners and you're not just doing this yourself? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. 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 I mean, just life experiences, you know, just all the stuff, just insurance. And, you know, he was very instrumental in getting, you know, more overhead in place, more insurance in place, you know, all this stuff that I had no idea we needed. Right. Yep. And it was, you know, it was obviously when you're a young and growing company, and you're you're buying these insurance policies that you know you need, but there's so much money. Like we don't, you know, we don't the contracts don't require this. And it's like, well, we need it in place because of this, and we need the back office. So we don't screw up. You know, all this stuff that was you know very instrumental in getting the systems and everything in place so that we could keep growing. What were the first few years of Anvil like? Oh my God, it was insane. <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> you know, I tried to find a photo of this when you set this up, and I'd still like to find it. So we started almost ten years ago. Attendees on July, we were in a hotel room. And this isn't a hotel room that you'd want to stay in. Um, so we were downtown San Francisco. There's three of us. We each had a wall. And if you had to take a call, you'd have to walk out of the room so you wouldn't disturb everybody else. So we were, you know, we'd, we'd go meet with people. Well, who are you? Who are you guys? You know, and there's a lot of questioning if we're a fraud, you know, all this stuff. What do you do? And at that point, we're like, we'll do whatever you want us to do. Right. I mean, it was, there's nothing going on in the economy at that time. Right. Mm -hmm. We were chasing work around town. You know, we saw this, you know, the federal world, everyone was hot and heavy in the federal world in 2011 because all the private stuff was dried up. We were chasing some of that work. I think we won our first like low bid construction contract and it was for the cemetery in San Francisco, which was a veterans affairs cemetery. I think it was $105,000. Right. No kidding. Yeah. So that's where it all, that's where it all started. All started at the cemetery, man. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, uh, I don't know if it was that one. No, nah, I don't, nah, I don't remember. Yeah. It all started at the cemetery in San Francisco in the Presidio. Now why, why San Francisco? That's just cause you get, that was where you guys were, were at and familiar with. I mean, it's cause San Francisco, California, you know, this it's, it's, it's a tough place to do business. Yeah. You know, we were, you know, I was obviously in the industry here, Richard's from here and so is HT. So, you know, there's not a whole lot of federal stuff going on around here. We never really got into the federal world. We've probably gotten more more money-losing ventures in the federal world than we did anywhere else. You know, it was here. We knew the players in town. 
we knew how to, we knew all the red tape and how to work around it mm. and work with it. So it's, it's kind of one of those things like, yeah, it's a pain in the butt to work in San Francisco. And we recently, I mean, since then, you know, I think last year, San Francisco is now the most expensive place to build in the world past New York last year. Now we know it and we like it. There's a lot of barriers out there, but we almost like them because it keeps our competition out of the city. Yeah, that's a good point. But I mean, it's, it's the most expensive, some of the most expensive labor in the world It's the most expensive to build. So, I mean, it, it's, it's good and bad, right? You screw up a bit, it gets pretty expensive. How have you guys been able to grow so fast? Because I mean, it, 10 years, it's, it's a long time, but it's also not a long time to go from working out of a hotel room with the three of you guys in, you know, single crammed hotel room to doing jobs at, at SFO, you know, one of the biggest airports in the world to, you know, Malibu paradise, you know, disaster cleanups to, to clearing. I mean, a lot of the infrastructure projects you guys do are very, very, very high profile and, and important, especially around San Francisco. How, how did you guys do that? I mean, I think we always, you know, everyone warned us about our growth. Don't grow too fast. And it was, um, we got lucky somewhat with the economy coming out of there yeah. and we, you know, we, we tried to control our growth, but we still grew mid to high double digits every year and sometimes triple digits. Jeez. A lot of it was cash in the bank, right? I mean, we we're a union company. We have, you know, a very large workforce last summer. I think we had 330 people on payroll at the peak. Wow. So a lot of it was control, you know, early on we subbed out a lot of work and, you know, we were scrappy. We took whatever we could and, to try and make a dollar. And through that process, I mean, I don't think, you know, I'm employee number like 35 at Anvil, which means there was 34 people at this company that we hired that got paid before we even dreamt of taking a paycheck. Yeah. Which was probably, I think three years before Richard and I paid ourselves a dime in HT at that time. How did you do that? uh, Savings? Yeah, savings. And we all kind of had like some side gigs. You know, I was consulting, Richard was consulting you know, burned through whatever savings I had in the last few years. I mean, it was a tough time, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, I was working like 70, 80 hour weeks, you know, like go to work, do the stuff, do your consulting job, come home, send out bids, look at stuff. You know, I was like, you know, I want to say almost every Saturday for a couple of years, but it didn't really feel like work. You know, it was kind of, we had this dream and we were all, we all have this, and we all diff, very different skill sets. But we were all very driven and, you know, failure was, you know, the thought of failure drove us just to keep pushing and keep pushing. And through that, you know, we figured out really early, just hire the best people you can. I remember early on, before we even paying ourselves, like, we need we need this estimator. And, oh, my God, he's so expensive, right? Looking back, it was, you know, a drop in the bucket. But we're like, all right, let's do this. Let's hire this guy. And then it's always been, and now it's just we've got this team of people that are just unbelievable. we got the right people, you know, on our bus and put them in the right seats. And it's just been it's been great to watch us grow and all that. I mean, they, these guys and gals are you know better at their jobs than I ever was. I guess that's what hiring. It's been a struggle for me just because I look at it at face value. Like, Oh man, I have to add another person on the payroll. That's going to cost X amount of dollars, but then they come on and they start producing, you know, all these results after you hire them. And you're like, Oh man, like I get all of this for the money I'm, I'm spending. Like this is a bargain for how much pro, yeah. you know productivity I'm getting out of out of this much money. I can't believe I was so concerned about how much money I was going to spend on this person when it's helped us out so, so much. But I, I get in my head all the time about just worrying about how much money I have to spend on people and forgetting how much how much of a benefit in investing people is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I say this all the time. You see it in some of my posts, right? I mean, our people are our greatest asset. Yeah. 
I mean, anyone can rent or buy iron. I mean, you know, especially now with the economy where it is. So yeah, we spend a ton of money on training people. We have a ton of training programs that we put our people through, leadership programs and all that, which I wasn't that big a believer in until I did it myself. And I think that definitely changed our organization. What changed when you went through that? I mean, how did your mindset change about leadership development? Well, it was just, you know, it was a lot about focusing on, you know, like core values and stuff like that. When I was a young PD at another company, I didn't know what the core values were, right? They probably came in a coffee cup. Yep. Some party and I threw them away, right? So, <laughs> it was, you know, <laughs> I don't care. Yeah, integrity and construction or integrity and all yeah. that stuff, right? Yep. You don't pay attention to that stuff when you're right out of the, you know, out of high school as an operator or, you know, out of college as a PE or something like that. So we went through them, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out core values and trying to make them simple. So they're, you know, Teamwork, safety, grit, best in class. So we, we did stuff like that. And a lot of it was just like, just, you know, interacting with our, our executive team and other people is, you know, establishing trust, speed of trust, all the stuff that you kind of look over and you just realize that, you know, if, if you put all these people together in a room and a lot of good people are going to make stuff happen, a lot of it's communicating what the goals are and where we want to get yeah. and growing people. I mean, people want to grow. If you give people an opportunity, they're going to take and run. What was the vision? I mean, what were you guys? aiming to do what was the motivator and, and and the goal you know from the beginning to motivate you three when you were you know just slogging along to when you were trying to convince people to come over and, and join you guys yeah you know that's it's kind of you know i need to find some of my old notes and i haven't done that in a while it'd be fun to pull up for our 10-year anniversary and see what where we thought it would be yeah a lot of it was you know people want to work in an organization where their voice is heard yeah and they can have an opportunity to grow Give them an opportunity and people will grow in it. So a lot of that was, hey, we're a young company. There's plenty of opportunity here. We're not you know, owned by a, a foreign company or a venture capital company. It's all right here. We want to keep growing. There's plenty of opportunity. We want you to come over here and you know, take best practices from wherever you work and let's compare them to what we have as our best practices that have you know, obviously been taken from somewhere else and come up with you know, a great place to work. We spend a lot of time with culture here. I spend a lot of my time on that now because I think that's what drives a construction company. How do you foster that? How do you create that? So that's a billion dollar question you have there, Aaron. Oh yeah, um, yeah. No, that's it's a, it's a tough one. <laughs> you know, like people. You know, I think I've heard in some previous podcasts people say culture, and they, you know they have a Christmas party and all that stuff. And I think that you know that's good. But we spend a lot of time in it. And we have all kinds of different company outings, ski trips, operations meetings, wine tasting, intern appreciation events barbecues with the families we're one of the only construction companies in the area that invites the entire field to our christmas party with their spouses mm. which uh and it's a formal christmas party so they get to they get to dress up and bring everyone it's one of my favorite events we have every year so it's it's letting people be heard and it's being seen it's me walking on job sites and saying hi to everybody and you know asking how their family is and all that stuff you know people we've been staying around here up on the wall somewhere. I think it's in this conference room that I'm in right now. But you know, we have a saying that we all work for the field. It's 100% true, right? The executives don't put pipe in the ground or you know excavation or pour concrete. Yep. We're as good as you know our laborers and operators and carpenters. We got some of the best out there. So that's what that's what makes us different. And people like seeing that. You know, we're we've got a really good crew right now, and all different levels. We like challenging projects. And we've got, you know, as you said, we have some very high profile projects so people like working on those. Mm. I mean, executives, you're not a cost code anywhere. You can't bill on Alan Guy time 
Like, yeah, you know, X no. amount of units on this job, you know, you're going to, you're going to owe us for my time. It, it just doesn't work that way. You bill on linear foot of pipe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How'd you guys get involved in the disaster emergency type work? Cause that, when we, when we started working with you guys, that was, you know, the first place we went was paradise. And I know you were doing a little bit of work before paradise. That's how you got your foot in the door, even for paradise in Malibu. how did you guys have the opportunity to even get into that world? Yeah, you know, that's kind of a, an interesting story. It's kind of a long one, but the short version of it is, is I'd say it's like 75% kind of reputation and 25% being at the right place at the right time. Mm. So there was a, um, a big federal contractor based in our backyard that did stuff internationally that we'd called on for years. I'd meet him at the chairman and the CEO, I'd meet him at industry events and get my business card and follow up with an email and never heard anything back. So fast forward, Halloween of 2017, I'm sitting actually in the same conference room and my phone rings. It's the chairman's cell phone, right? I look at my phone. I'm like, this guy's got to be butt down with me. And well, let's answer and see if he's really there. And I was phone and it's him and another guy we knew from the industry saying, hey, we need your help. Okay, what's going on? They're like, well, we were just activated by the Army Corps to go clean up Santa Rosa for the tub fire. And we need people like you to help us. Can you come down to our office the next three days? I said, I will see you guys in 20 minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, uh, I jumped in the car, ran down there, walked into the office, and they had, dude, it was, they had people from all over the country that were working for them that were mobilizing people up to coffee park to get started and all this stuff. And I came and sat down with them. I was probably there all afternoon. I think I went back the next morning. So they're, you know, this is what we think we need to do. You know, there's not, there's been a couple big fire cleanups in California, but nothing to the scale of Santa Rosa at that time. So we're sitting there, they're like, this is what we need from this, is what we need from this. Someone comes in the room and they go, it's going to rain tonight. Someone says, well, we need to put Swifty in place. And they look around and I raise my hand. I said, we got it. All right. Hand in the air. And the chairman looked at me and goes, all right, Anvil's got it. And that was just kind of, you know, off to the races from there. And he still tells that story to the day, right? We were all scrambling around this room and didn't know what to do. And there's Alan over in the corner and says, we got it. And he went and did it. So then I had to walk myself out of that room, call my operations guys who were pretty by the book. And we were, it was kind of a weird time because of smoke. You know, we didn't know what was going on with the job. I called and I said, guys, we got to go pull a bunch of guys off production work and go put in you know, straw waddled and coffee park. And they're like, you've lost your mind, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. This is, trust me on this one. We need to go do this, whether it's for work or because it's the right thing to do, but we're going to do this. It morphed into our whole, you know, side of our business. So we did coffee park for them. Then we went and did Reading fire that fall. And then we were successful in pursuing the cleanup of Paradise in Malibu, which was a little over a year ago today, which is when you and I first spoke for the first time. And it's not just a small part of the business. I mean, those are, you are among enormous contractors on both jobs, huge contractors that have been doing this stuff for years and years and years that are, you know, federal government's go-tos. And yet you guys are there, I mean, <laughs> putting up some of the best numbers, if not the best numbers there too. Oh yeah, we put up some numbers. Yeah. <laughs> that was, uh, it was, uh, that was a fun time. It's interesting because it's, um, you know, we're very big on tracking daily costs and daily production costs and all that. And we've used it since day one. And usually it's like we do a, a weekly job cost report or it's actually not, a, we usually do a weekly, we call it an LDR, labor distribution report, where we, you know, the following Wednesday we go think, we figure out how much pipe we put in the ground the previous week or whatever we put, whatever unit we did and look at our weekly payroll costs and then try and make changes. Where Paradise, 
And now we got our production like the following morning at 10 a.m. And you could see other people's production. So it was was just like a whole competitive thing that you had going. And our team underneath this contractor, we were done three months ahead of everybody else for, I think, probably the same amount of debris. So it was fun. I mean, it was fun. It was a good competition. You know, you talk to our superintendents and TMs, and they're like, we can't. We love that work. Because it was, you know, it was sad work getting up there and cleaning the stuff up. At the end of the day, it was raw construction. Yeah. Right? It was, there's no RFIs, there's no smittle, there's no delays, there's no red frogs in your way or salamanders or whatever all else we run to in California. It was, this town needs to be cleaned up. How fast can you safely do it? Yeah. I mean, so it was running. I mean, you were up there. We ran hard. We ran 6-12 for five months. What was it like getting into the fire cleanup world to begin with? I mean, you're like your first time to paradise. What? What is it even like? Because you were, I mean, probably one of the first people in there. And so, so I guess this is one, it's one of the most famous places, you know, in the world at the time, because that's, that's all that's on the news is this entire town burning overnight and Mm -hmm. and thousands of people displaced to, you know, the world forgets about it, yet someone has to clean it up. You're one of the first people in there. What, what is it like to just see that from the very beginning? You know, it was paradise was our third or fourth fire. So I'd been to some of these towns and stuff that had been devastated before so it was kind of you know i was kind of expecting kind of the same thing you know a bunch of it was it's definitely sad a bunch of burnt down stuff but i mean paradise was just devastated yeah the previous fires were like pockets and they controlled the fire and there'd be houses you know where it would in malibu it kind of wound down a valley and burnt some stuff on the other side but i mean this was just total devastation besides a portion of the commercial corridor so it was just like it was unbelievable. I remember the first time I was up there, I think it was still smoking. It was definitely eerie when we got going on that one. You know, you saying like, sure, we'll take care of the, the, the SWIP and all that. Is, is it a little bit of putting yourself in a position where you just kind of have to figure it out? Like were you, and, and even Paradise, was it, or these fires, was it, were you coming into it with, with total confidence or were you kind of like, all right, we just need to figure this out and make it work? You know, kind of both. I would say, I mean, I think if you definitely confidence because of the team I have behind me, Yeah, I know that if I commit to it, we'll make it happen. And that's kind of how we've made our name. Yeah. If, if we say we're going to do something, we're going to do it. Whether we, you know, make money or lose money, but we're going to do this. Some of that was definitely like, holy crap, what have I got us into? <laughs> like, yeah. But I think that's, you know, that's kind of growing a business. I'm sure you have the same thing. You know, if you're not, if you're not pushing yourself, and have that feeling every few months or something like that. You're not, you're not growing. Oh yeah. It kind of comes with, with new pressure at every level. Cause I, I was talking about this with someone last night. It's like, you get to a point where you're looking at a revenue figure or you're like, once I'm there, everything's going to be great. And then you get to that number and it's like, you're even more broke than you were before. Cause you're growing even faster. You're adding more people or investing in different projects here and there. And then you're in the exact same thought process. Like, well, okay, you know, that was this number. But once I get to this number or this size, then everything's going to be great. And then you get to that, that, you know, step and then it's just the exact same situation. So I feel like it's just nonstop. You know, I feel like my back is up against the wall all the time, which is kind of a good thing. Yeah. I think you always have to push yourself. And I a hundred percent agree with that. I yeah. mean, it's always, you set a goal and you get to the goal. You don't just give up. Well, we made it. You know, it's like sometimes you're in a better spot than you were when you set the goal. Sometimes you're in a worse spot, you know, and then you got to, there's definitely growing pain in construction companies and same with you, right? You got to get to this 
kind of a critical mass to support all the overhead you've brought on and, you know, all the, to be able to be flexible with different types of jobs going on and still, you know, still be able to move labor around and people and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think contractors are notorious for definitely overcommitting. You know, a lot of them give us a bad name for doing that, but I think you have to, uh, I mean, if you stand by your word and make stuff happen, it's going to, you're going to keep going in the right direction. How, the, the the work you guys do is really unique too because it's it's so diverse. I mean, you'll you'll be at SFO, you'll be at a dam, you know, environmental project. I see you guys are you know working right on the bay right now. Uh, you'll be working you know downtown at the transit center. You're just across the all all sorts of things. You know, fire cleanup. How how have you guys been able to do so so many different things? Our philosophy is we like to challenging work, and I think it helps us recruit top people. Mm. So it's always we you know we look for projects that, you know, are a little more challenging than kind of normal projects. We look at different clients on that same aspect of the thing. You know, I don't know. We've got a very diverse group of people here that came from kind of all different aspects of the infrastructure world. But, you know, I'd almost put us more in that big infrastructure space as opposed to, you know, we're not just a pipeline subcontractor. We're not just a concrete subcontractor, right? We're uh, a... We're an infrastructure prime contractor. We like being a prime contractor. I'd say, you know, 75% of our work is really prime. Um, most of it's public works. We've always liked that space and we've always done well on these challenging projects. And I think it, it really helps with the people we have. What's the benefit of being a prime over a sub? You're closer to the money. Mm. <laughs> At the end of the day. Yep. Anyway, not necessarily closer to the money. I mean, that's definitely a part of it. You can control your own destiny. Right. I mean, you can manage your schedule. You can manage your subcontractors. There's not, you know, an intermediate between you and the owner. Yeah. We like, we certainly like being a prime contractor better. But I mean, especially growing up, I'll call it growing up when we were growing there, we weren't prime a whole lot. We were, you know, a subcontractor. We didn't have the qualifications. We didn't have the bonding. I think our, in like 2014 or 15, we had like 85 jobs that year. It was awful. And it was just like, our whole goal coming out of that with our executive plan all that was like less jobs. I think we pulled 20 job numbers last year. Wow. Really? So, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Better jobs, bigger jobs. You know, you can staff them better, park people there, and you can execute them a lot better. Now, what's the deal with COVID right now? Because I know you guys were shut down and then you're not shut down. And then how's that been in San Francisco? Because that's one of the, I guess, one of the harder hit places, especially just economically, having the city of San Francisco totally shut down right now. I was looking at your story the other day. I mean, in Union Square, all the shops boarded up with plywood, which it's just kind of eerie. I don't really see that where I'm at in Phoenix, but it's just, it's it's crazy with where you guys are at. How's it affected business and, and life? Yeah, you know, it's been a weird, it's obviously been a weird, I guess it's a month and a half now. You know, we got that shut down order on 316 monday 316 and it was we're shutting down and then at four o'clock we figured out construction wasn't shutting down that was a statewide order so then wednesday came along and it was the bay area county shut down and we're not shutting down and then they released a new a new list of what's considered essential jobs and what's not essential jobs so that was uh obviously a long week you know the stock market was crashing it was um it was definitely one to remember and now it's kind of, I'd say 75%, 80% of our work's gone right now. Mm. And some of them are ones I thought for sure would stop. And the ones I thought for sure would go aren't going right now. Mm. 
which is definitely weird. We have a job this summer where we're shutting down two or three lanes on the Embarcadero here, and that one's been delayed. So you would think that that would be a, a great job to have accelerated right now. But, yep. but it's just out of your in hands. In the huh? county of San Francisco. Yeah, so I mean, the first few weeks was tough with uh, the workforce. And everybody, you know, everyone was, we didn't know what the data was on this disease. You know, people, some people wanted to work. Some people didn't want to work. I think as the unemployment line started to grow, people realized that it's, it's good to be working. Yep. So we've been able to keep everybody on and, you know, move our schedule around so that everyone's working. But I think it's, like you mentioned earlier, our, our quarantine has been extended to the end of May. They haven't released all the rules on it, but I just, I think the state's going to fall apart. I just, I can't see it happening. On the news last weekend, there's 40,000 people at the beach in Newport Beach. I think people have been inside for six weeks and you can't, it's getting hot out now. I mean, it's not, people see the data, the problem is people see the data. So they know that the cases are flat and it's not, you know, there's room in the ICs and there's room in the hospitals and they're starting to release stuff. So they got to, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, we're not sure. The economy is another scary one. Right. I mean, private stuff, we think it's all still going. Public stuff usually gets people out of a recession, but now, you know, unless something happens with the, you know, the city and counties don't have any revenue over the last three months. Yep. So they don't have any money for the public work. So it's like, how is that going to be backfilled? Is there, you know, phase four, phase five of this infrastructure bill or what's going to happen? So a lot of uncertainty out there. I mean, we're fortunate we've got a great backlog uh, for the next 12 months. So we're, we're happy to keep working. So is that how you guys have somewhat prepared for uncertainty is is through managing your backlog and making sure you have enough work well into the future? Yeah, that's a big part of it, you know, is making sure we have the right backlog. You know, the private stuff around here was getting pretty frothy for a while, but we always we always did better on the public stuff. And I distinctly remember in like 2008 and 2009 when I was working for WebCore, right? That faucet, that private faucet got shut off pretty quick. Yep. And a lot of other people in the organization remember that too. So we've always pushed to have probably a bigger backlog than we could handle, which has created some internal conflicts. Just knowing that something's going to change or something's going to cancel or some permit's not going to come through. And then, you know, if the economy does turn off again, we, we think public works is the, uh, the best way through it. Mm. And that's all mostly low bid. Yeah, yeah. Majority of it's rip them and read them, low bid. How do you guys stay competitive in a low bid environment? It'll be interesting to see what happens in the next six months because what happens is all the private guys come into the public market. Yep. And they don't know they don't know how to handle the the public stuff. So they usually drop the bottom out of the market, and then they usually lose money, and they start raising margins. But sometimes it's too late. So you know, we've got a really good resume and really good people. So there'll be a lot of good pre-qualified work we think out there that'll preclude some of the the guys that haven't been doing this type of work that we've been doing from bidding in our market. And I think, you know, we self-perform so many trades now. You know, we got our, our electrical company up and running in the last six months. So we can take that in-house. And so, I mean, as long as we maintain our good people, we can we can beat anyone, I think, in mm. terms of productions, right? We don't necessarily have to lower our margins. We're just going to be better at the work than anybody else. Yeah. That's what it really comes down to because everyone still has the same equipment. Everyone's bidding on the same set of plans. It's it's really just how fast you can do it. Yeah, absolutely. You got to be better. Yep. You got to be good. You have good people running it. You're going to be fine. How, uh, 
going into uh, personal life, you you had a kid recently, right? Yeah, we did. So my wife and I welcomed a baby girl into the world on four five, Madeline Jane Guy. It was an awesome experience. For those of you who haven't done it, I highly recommend it. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait stressful. on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No rush. Yeah. I mean, I waited for a while, right? Yeah. So there's no, there's no rush. How has that changed your outlook on things? Then you kind of take a step back and realize what's going on in the world. You know, starting a business, it was always when I started, I was single. You know, I was living in the city. I didn't have anything to do besides work, and and, and I could always put more effort in and get a different outcome out of it. Whereas with a kid, and especially when your wife's giving birth, it's like you just you can't do anything. Yeah, you, you know, you're sitting there and you you feel helpless. So it's kind of like you take a step back and realize all the stuff going on in the world. And it was definitely crazy to be in there with COVID. You know, we were I was essentially locked in a hotel room for, or so I was essentially locked in a hospital room for three days. I couldn't leave the room. Wow. So finally, day two, they allowed Postmates, so I was allowed to walk downstairs and grab food. Instead of eating, I think it was leftover airline food or something there to feed me because I was starving <laughs> up there. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a weird experience being in there with, with COVID going on. Now, did and you, those of you that know me, I can't sit still. Like, I mean, like, yeah. So being caged up in a room was, was pretty tough for me. I'm, I'm the same way. That's why I'm, I'm so excited to get back on the road here pretty soon. I mean, I've just been sitting in the same chair for way too long now. Yeah. I mean, it was because we were quarantined in place for the three weeks before Madeline was born. So I was, you know, still working from my office, um, still working from home or working from home. So I was like, I've been here for three weeks. Like, I haven't even been a kid yet. Like, how am I going to handle it? You know, so it was kind of like, it took a lot, but you get pretty tired pretty quickly when you have a newborn. So that definitely uh, calmed me down a little bit. Did you have to wait to have a kid because of the business or was that just how life shook out? You know, that's just how life shook out. I got married two years ago, yep. almost two years ago. Yeah. So, Definitely got married a little later in life, but yeah, I mean, I think it would have been a little harder to do with a wife and a kid. You could definitely do it, but I think you just, you you know, your outlook on life changes when you, when you have other people, you know, to care for and provide for, you know, when you're 28 and you started a business, like, you know, you don't have any bills, yep. you can risk it all. Yeah. And if you lose, it's it all isn't much. Yep. You know what I mean? So that's the time to do it. And you don't have, you don't have to worry about anybody else. You know, it's just kind of just focus on, on the business and grow out of it. Now it's, you know, it's pretty fortunate and starting it 10 years ago. So now I'm able to uh, hopefully be a little more involved. Yeah. I mean, I, as far as our business goes, I stress about everyone else rather than myself. Cause if it doesn't work out for me, like, okay, I'll, I'll start over again and, and it'll be fine. I don't, I don't really lose anything. There's really nothing to lose. But then everyone else, you know, I'm so concerned about their livelihoods. I don't want them to go have to find a new job. So I think that's my yeah. sense of responsibility is is more so for for all the other people involved and then letting, you know, the companies we work with down if we fail rather than just trying to support myself because it, it, it just doesn't matter for me right now. Yeah, 100% agree. It's all, you got you do it for the people, especially when you're your age, right? Yeah, you got, if this one doesn't work, the next one will, but you got a lot of people that are relying on you. Yep. So it's, and it's always... It's always pushing forward. Yeah. And it, I, it is funny too. A lot of people say, you know, man, you, you, you have a company, you, you work for yourself. And, and you, I kind of just chuckle because it's like, no, I, I work for everybody else. <laughs> I mean, every one yeah. of the companies, my boss, this is, this, I have to answer to everybody. I have to make sure they're taken care of. 
it's, it's not just you're working for yourself. It's like, yeah, I mean, if I want to go to the pool on a Tuesday at 11 a.m., middle of the workday, sure, I can do that. But it's not really a, it's not really much more freedom as far as responsibility goes. Cause it's, you're now you're responsible for all the people that you're, that are depending on you. hundred percent agree. And if you go to that pool at Tuesday at 11 AM, chances are you're sitting in a chair thinking about work or what you're not doing. Right. That's, yep. Yeah. You can't, just put the, it uh, you can't turn it off. I mean, yeah. 24 hours a day. I'm sure you wake up all the time at 2 AM thinking of something you didn't do. You didn't pay an insurance bill or, you know, what, what's happening here. It's not, I mean, it's definitely good. I mean, I like stress and I like being pushed and all that, but it, it's a uh, definitely not for the faint. Your advice for for younger guys what what kind of advice do you have for for younger guys out there that or younger people that that may be thinking about construction, may have not thought about construction, or, or are in construction? Do you have any advice for just younger people overall? You know, I think first of all, construction. I think it's an awesome industry. Like the people are the people are awesome. I mean, yeah. it's, it's tough work tough, tough work. The hours can be long, but there's just, there's great people in this industry. Obviously I've met a lot of friends over the years through this and acquaintances and, and all that stuff. I mean, I think advice, you know, I'm the oldest of the millennial generation. So it's like, don't, don't get stuck in a stereotype. It's kind of what I say, go the extra mile, you know, make it happen. Ask for more responsibility. The pay is going to follow. Yep. Get at, I mean, especially if you're going to get after it, now's the time. Don't be sitting back and expecting for come to you. You got to go get it. You know, I love, we got a lot of young guys and girls in this company and I love watching them grow. I mean, it's fun to, you know, go to, go to an owner's meeting or go to a project and get compliments on our team. For me, it's really fun when I get a phone call from an owner or an engineer or something like that, talking about, you know, someone on our team and how they're doing and they're doing a great job or whatever. But I mean, I think there's, there's a ton of opportunity in this business. There's a ton of good jobs. You know, the clean jobs, you got to work hard, the rewarding. And I still remember every job I've touched through my career. We're driving around town. My wife thinks I'm nuts. You know, we did that manhole or whatever, yeah. whatever it was, right? Yep. There's a certain sense of pride and, and looking at all that stuff. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of good jobs out there. I think we need to get more vocational schools back in the high schools, wood shop and auto shop and all that stuff. Cause there's a, I mean, you can, especially young, you know, you can come out and get in a union and make really good money right out of high school and it's a good lifestyle as far as going back to, to values and, and somewhat tying into that why is fun a core value i mean people when people think construction they think people that are just you know busting their asses all day not really enjoying what they do just to make ends meet how is that a core value I mean, there is long hours in this industry yeah and if someone tells you that that there's not that's a lie oh yeah but those go phases and i think you know it's our core values is fun. Who says we can't have fun? So kind of hitting on your point right there is you spend a lot of time with these people. They're all smart people. They all want to do the right thing. And it's just, you know, if you make it a little more enjoyable, you get a lot more out. You get, you know, the safety's better, the production's better, all that stuff. It just makes it, there's no reason it can't be fun. You know, the old school mentality of the only way you're, you know, you're doing something right is if you're not getting yelled at is changing mm-hmm. stuff, but that's changing. You know, it's a lot more positive reinforcement, which, is new for that industry and we're all we're all not good at it still yep but i think i think it's important we spend a lot of time like i was saying you know picnics ski trips you know we took a bunch of guys and girls down to con expo and all that stuff and i think it helps it helps the team yeah you had a big group at con expo yeah we had two different groups a different group each night it almost killed me (laughs) (laughs) but it was uh it was good you know people remember that and you see a lot of stuff it makes you a, a better organization 
It goes a long ways too, because I get, again, going back to the dollars, I get tied up in, you know, looking at Con Expo, for example, I get tied up in, oh, wow, it's going to cost X amount of dollars to send everyone there. Well, is it, is it really worth it? Like, does this person need to go this and this and that? And then you go back to, well, you know, even if they don't need to go, I think they need to go, you know, just for, to, to, to know that we're thinking about them, to be part of the team, to maybe they'll get an idea that they can bring back to the company from that, whatever it may be, I get caught up in, in just the expense of, of doing that. But then after the fact, you're just like, I can't even believe I was worried about the few thousand dollars I was going to invest in this. Yeah, I know you're hundred percent correct on that. And it was, especially when you're a small company, you know, those dollars go a lot farther somewhere else. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, well, well, all right, I guess we're doing that. But we've always been big believers in trying to keep that culture and training and people realize that, you know, we, we really do appreciate them here and they make, they make a big difference for us. So I think you get it back tenfold for every dollar you spend on that type of stuff. That's what I found with California. How tough is it having a business in California? It's a monster. We have a lot of regulations, obviously a lot of, we have a lot of everything here, you know, tax regulations, smog, tier four equipment, environmental stuff that's more strict than the federal stuff. But I mean, it's what we know, right? It's kind of weird. We try and go to, we did some projects in other states and we get smoked because we're not used to not having to deal with all that stuff. Yeah. So, it's, I mean, it was, it's kind of funny. We know at that last roundtable you had in Nashville last summer, I was talking to the guys girls around the table from different parts of the country and we're just comparing commodity prices. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. like both of our jobs were dropping, you know, <laughs> at the, uh, at the Delta for like asphalt or base rock or concrete or something like that. Yeah. That is, that's funny. So, what, what contractors sit around and talk about. Yeah. I know we're idiots. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah prices I, feel, on rocks. You know, I know we all tell stories, right? I feel yeah. bad for the spouses there because we're always talking about some stupid story, you know, <laughs> some piece of equipment or some rock, and you know everyone else at the table's lost. But that's what it is. That's yeah. what makes it fun. Yeah. So, but yeah, yeah California is an interesting place. It's a tough. We know it. We like it. I guess you could say. So. Yeah, I guess you just don't know, know any better. I mean, you, you made a joke yeah, about correct. salamanders. It, it that's a big deal. Wildlife is a big deal in California. But then you'll go to like the southeast, for example, and it's just kind of like yeah, just kind of bulldoze everything. Yeah, we don't really yeah, care I mean, what's have, here. I mean, we have different types of erosion control fence with different types of animal gates in them. And by animals, I mean like reptile gates, you know? Like it's this nuts. Is the, yeah, this is the sort of snake gate here, salamander gate here, you know? It's just, <laughs> what? <laughs> so another standard like Caltrans specs. It's, it's goofy, but we know it. It's our world. So we don't, like you said, we don't know any different. You know I mean? Like, yeah, we're the most expensive construction economy in the world. We don't know any different. We're not comparing it to anything. It is what it is. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's all I wanted to touch on. I wanted to touch on California a little bit, but that's that's just about everything. Is there anything we didn't get to or you wanted to say before we were all done here? No, I think that was a great first podcast. You feel good about it? Yeah, I do. It's fun. I think we have about three listeners, so you'll at least get three Perfect. three listens for you. I'll make everyone in the company download it. How about that? Oh, that'd be a huge help. <laughs> yep, let's get them sucked in. Perfect. I like it. Yeah, yeah nice. cool. That well, that's that's the only reason I had you on just to get get the uh, company like on board. It. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Again, thanks so much for taking a little time out of your day. I know there's a lot going on in the world. Little kid at home, COVID, business, and all that. So I really appreciate you taking a little a little time for us, telling telling a little bit about your story, and hopefully it helps some people out. Yeah, anytime. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Aaron.
Cool. Well, I appreciate everyone listening. Again, if you could share this podcast, found value in it, or uh, share any one of the podcasts that you've enjoyed, it's a huge help for us. You're the reason why we're doing this and, and how this grows. So thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>